and welcome to the Marathon Medic Podcast. My name's Amy and I'm a junior doctor and running coach with an interest in sports medicine. On this series of the podcast, we're talking about running and travel. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Dr. Nathan Hudson-Peacock, an emergency and expedition doctor. We're chatting about some of the risks associated with more extreme sporting events, such as long ultramarathons or races in challenging environments. So hi Nathan and thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We're going to be chatting about some of the risks and and health problems that can occur from big ultra events but before we start could you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? So hi thank you very much for having me on the podcast today. Uh, My name is Nathan, I'm a doctor, I work primarily in the emergency department but I also have a special interest in expedition medicine uh, with a focus on desert and high altitude although I do dabble in other areas as well. Uh, and I myself recently got into running so I'm very excited to be here and chat to you today. Good and can you tell us a little bit about why you suddenly started running um, and how that's been for you? Yeah so it goes way back to my school days really. I always used to hate running. I thought it was possibly the worst thing to be spending my time doing on a Thursday afternoon at school, running in the rain, getting muddy, getting stitches left right and centre and thought it was generally not a very fun activity. Uh, Secondly, I always have had quite bad knees historically. Uh, My left knee used to lock a lot when I was a child uh, and it caused me some sort of anxiety around my knees. And then in university, I injured my other knee and ended up having uh, an operation on that knee and being on crutches for about four months. And again, I sort of always used this commonly held belief that running is bad for your knees as an excuse to not actually take up running um, because I didn't like it anyway. So that was how I got through most of my life, not really doing any running. And there was a couple of things really that made me challenge that. And firstly, it was getting into the whole expedition medicine world. I realised that I I need to keep on top of my fitness uh, and that had become a lot harder since finishing university. Whereas at university, I was playing a lot of sport, uh, keeping generally fit, after that, starting work as a doctor, I had far fewer opportunities to keep fit just through playing sport. And so something like running would have been a convenient way to keep fit. And through doing the expedition medicine, obviously, as the doctor, you need to be at your peak fitness so that you're never a liability and holding back the team. You're always on top of your game. So running started to creep into my mind. Uh, I had a friend at university who took me on a couple of runs and they were actually quite fun. And which kind of blew my mind. I think the most important thing was that uh, we ran much slower. So we ran at a pace where we could comfortably talk to each other, which was, I don't think, anything I'd ever done in my entire life before that point. And uh, she took me on a five kilometre run. And before we went, I said, you know, no way, it's not going to happen. But then we went on the run and we went at a pace that meant we could comfortably talk and actually managed it okay. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. It was actually quite fun. And uh, so that sort of sowed the seed that actually I can run and it can be enjoyable sometimes. Um, So then the thing that really made me start running regularly was actually in my on my expedition to Pakistan last year. So I was with a group of Irish uh, trekkers and we were going to K2 base camp, uh, which is the base camp of the second highest mountain in the world. And then we were going from there across the Gondogorola, which is a high altitude mountain pass in the in that same region. Um, and there were two participants on that trek who made me sort of reconsider my position on running. Uh, one was 
uh, a chap who had spent his whole life running. Um, he had competed internationally in his age category in the Commonwealth Games, I believe. And he said that he, well, firstly, it was his determination to run every day, despite being at high altitude, despite trekking for several hours a day, he still wanted to, to run. And it was because he hadn't missed a single day of running in two and a half years. And, <laughs> I'm not sure if that sounds healthy. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and this was my, my belief. I'd tried a few mm-hmm. times before that to take up running, thinking, oh, I need to rest at least every other day. Uh, and it became really difficult because you know you, you manage a couple of weeks and then you fall out the habit because you think oh, i'll have an extra rest day and then suddenly you're you're out of the habit again uh but he made me realize that actually you can be a runner every day and yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's an unhealthy thing and there was another participant on the track who kind of on a similar vein said she used to hate running but then she challenged herself to a 5k a day for 30 day challenge and i thought well i know i can do a 5k because i've done it once <laughs> and it wasn't too bad and I might as well just try doing it every day. So I got back and thought, I'll just give it a go. It's only 30 days and I'll see what happens. And, you know, bearing in mind, I'd been on probably less than 10 runs in my life before this point. I just thought I'd go for it. And I'm not going to lie, the first week or two were really quite painful. <laughs> um, but after that, I started to get used to it and had this sort of identity shift in myself that actually I could be someone who runs on a fairly regular basis. Um, I'd like to say I kept it up every day following that, but obviously I didn't <laughs> sort of reduce in frequency, but it's kind of allowed me to see running in a different light, uh, see it as something that I can do, something I can enjoy. And actually it's become something I do quite regularly now, at least a couple of times a week, just to keep on top of my fitness, my mental health, uh, gives me an opportunity to listen to podcasts. Um, and yeah, so it's a great thing to do. Oh, I'm, I'm glad there was a shift. And I think also if someone runs every day, that's great, but you, we can also fit it into our own lives and we don't have to kind of conform to one idea of what running is so it's nice that you've just balanced it with everything you're doing um how did you get into expedition medicine because that's something that's not really mainstream medicine I feel like we have zero exposure to that through medical school so how did you get into that path um it was sort of by accident uh I I always had an interest in pre-hospital emergency medicine through uh, my medical school days I was interested in emergency medicine I did my medical electives uh, or my student selected components with different air ambulance trusts and uh, was a first responder at university uh, I was interested in the pre-hospital emergency medicine world but I didn't know expedition medicine really existed at that point it was only when I was a second year doctor and I was trying to find a way of getting some extra leave so I could go on a skiing holiday and I'd already used up all my annual leave. Essentially, I found myself Googling uh, medical conferences and ski resorts and stumbled across <laughs> one on expedition medicine. So eh, that sounds relatively interesting. Let's go along. At least I can get a week of skiing for some study leave. Um, unfortunately, not paid study leave, but still mm-hmm. it allowed me to go skiing. And in that week, I heard lots of different talks from a range of incredibly inspiring people from Lucy Obolensky, a doctor who's worked with David Attenborough, to Captain Nick Weatherall, another doctor who uh, got an OBE for being the first all-female team to cross Antarctica. Um, all these inspiring doctors who are doing incredible things with their lives that I just had no idea were possible as a doctor. And that created an, an entire shift in my sort of career trajectory from that point onwards. Instead of getting on the treadmill like so many of us do and applying for a training program and going through the motions to become a consultant in something or other at the end of the day, I thought actually expedition medicine seems like something I would really enjoy. And I want to dedicate at least a year to you know trying it out properly 
and seeing what it's like. And so I completely shifted my focus. I started working at events, um, ultramarathons in the UK, uh, providing medical cover on trekking events in the UK to build up that skill set. And then eventually got my first job, which was on Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, soon after that, got the Sahara Desert and then Everest Base Camp. And that sort of set the ball rolling. And as it was coming up to the end of that year, I realised that expedition medicine was so much more than just a break from my actual career. It was going to be something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Nice. I'm thinking I really want to do that as well now after you said all of that. <laughs> um, so talking about um, working in ultramarathons particularly, obviously there's loads of health benefits to running. Um, and I think ultramarathons kind of encourages people to run s- slowly, but for longer, which I think also has huge health benefits, both physically and mentally. Um, but we're going to talk about the... I guess the, the risks and the problems that can happen for some individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so should we start with kind of heat exhaustion and, and dehydration first? I think they're the things that probably pop into people's minds mm. the most. Yeah, it's something that has uh, received a lot of media attention and attention from sort of nutrition companies over the last few years as running has become more and more popular. Um, and you know, social media platforms have certainly popularised the sport as well. And more and more people are taking part in not just marathons, but ultra marathons and ultra marathons in extreme environments such as the Marathon de Sable in the desert. Mm. And so it's really important that there is clear medical advice that goes with that to keep people safe. And heat exhaustion is something that we often hear about, but we don't necessarily know that much about when it comes to running. Uh, And that was very obvious in the case of um, the Brownlee brother, Johnny Brownlee in the uh, tri- World Triathlon Series in Mexico in 2016 uh, who just before he crossed the finish line actually started showing clear signs of heat stroke uh, and one of the signs is something called tronchal ataxia so that's where your cerebellum which is the part of your brain that is essentially responsible for coordinating balance uh, and muscle control essentially overheats and stops working properly and as he approached the finish line you could see that at his waist he was unable to keep himself upright he was swaying side to side as if he were drunk and he kept collapsing over and over again and that sign that you see with Johnny Brownlee crossing the line there uh, is classic heat stroke and that's a life-threatening condition that needs aggressive cooling but instead everyone's cheering him on encouraging him you know his brother comes around the corner and you know, carries him over the line, which was, a, was absolutely heroic, of course, and they came second and third place, respectively. Um, but that is something that actually needs to be recognised by the wider public. And in well-publicised events such as that, there's obviously a medical team on hand at the finish line who can then start aggressive cooling, you know, with ice baths and things like that. But actually, a lot of people who are taking part in these events aren't often doing it as part of a massive well-organized event with medical and so it's really important people recognize and know how to deal with it um, so i think some there are some other forms of heat exhaustion as well which are not quite as severe as heat stroke but they are all on a spectrum and so it's important to recognize the signs uh, and symptoms so that people can recognize that and start addressing it before it progresses to something more serious so what are the more subtle things that people might notice in themselves if they are starting to become overheated so some of the, the the symptoms might be sort of nausea, vomiting, dizziness, muscle cramps, um, feeling a little bit confused and like you're unaware of your surroundings. Um, and so, but the thing is, these can often be confused with other similar um, exercise related illnesses, such as 
dehydration or even overhydration. So I think it's being aware of the risks as well associated with the environment you're in. So if you are running in a cool, dry place, then it's much less likely for you to get a heat-related illness compared to if you're running somewhere that's humid or somewhere that's hot. And they, they really do both matter because somewhere like the Marathon de Sable, it's a very dry environment. And so, you know, people are slightly less at risk of getting a heat-related illness compared to somewhere like a jungle marathon where you've got such a high humidity that the body's natural cooling mechanisms, uh, which relies on evaporation of sweat, aren't able to happen because they just can't compete with the humidity in the air. And so the body just finds it impossible to lose heat. And so it's being aware of the environment you're running in as well and how risky they are in terms of heat-related illnesses. And I think one of the best things people can do is acclimatise. So if you're planning a race in a different country with a different climate, then it's always advisable to go out before the race for a few days. If I mean, if you can, weeks are great. Um, and to just increase the duration of your exercise each day slowly, increase the intensity each day slowly, um, increase your exposure to the heat. So you could start one day kind of early in the morning and gradually go later and later. Mm. And then also just be aware of the gear you're wearing as well. So sometimes in these races, people are carrying these huge heavy packs that are kind of stopping their sweat um, evaporating. So also just building that up gradually as well, which is obviously really difficult if you're flying out somewhere and going for a race. But ideally, if we can train in these climates, then obviously it will reduce the risk as well. And even if you aren't able to get to the climate, just trying to replicate similar conditions at home, uh, whether that is through, you know, sessions in the sauna or layers on to simulate a hot, humid mm -hmm. environment. These are all things that can help. Uh, and for example, with altitude, there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of varying uh, gadgets that you might come across that will claim to help with acclimatization, most of which don't work. Uh, but there are some... Uh, some evidence-based mechanisms such as using a company such as the Altitude Centre in London, which has uh, essentially a hypoxic gym where you can go and train at altitudes up to equivalent of 5,000 metres. Um, and there are sort of hypoxic tents that you can use to sleep in to help your body acclimatise ahead of time. Yeah, so it's all about, I guess, planning um, and, Absolutely. and being aware of symptoms. Yeah. Um, if someone feels like these symptoms are coming on, Obviously, in, in big races, you'd hope that there's a medical team nearby. Is there anything people can do if they do feel themselves experiencing some of these symptoms they can while they're running or during the race? Yeah, I mean, if if you're on a race and you find yourself exhibiting symptoms that could be associated with dehydration, overhydration, heat-related illness, or even just exhaustion, then, of course, the easiest thing to do is to slow down and take a rest. And... You, you've we mentioned just before we started recording this one of the risk factors for all of these things is actually excessive motivation mm. and that is certainly a danger if people are so determined to push through the pain and push through their unwellness that's when things are going to start going wrong so if you notice any of these symptoms then it's definitely worth even just slowing down so you can take a rain check on how you're feeling or even stopping and resting for a few minutes that might be enough that you're that you need to actually get on top of um, what you're feeling and get you back on track so that things don't take a turn for the worse. Yeah, and I think if you spend the time acclimatising to the heat, you'll also know a bit more about how your body responds and what's normal for you. Mm. So hopefully you can then pick up on the signs that actually something isn't quite right. And it's so important to listen to your body and actually stop when you need to and not think, exactly. you know, I need to be first because you're not going to be first if you're collapsed. Exactly. Um, you mentioned altitude. So should we discuss um, races at high altitude next? Sure. What, what are the dangers of running at high altitude and what 
does high altitude um, have in terms of effect on the body? So the the main change of high altitude is uh, the lack of oxygen. So as you go up, the percentage of oxygen remains the same as at sea level, but the barometric pressure of the atmosphere decreases. So in a set volume of air, even though there's the same percentage of oxygen, the actual number of oxygen particles that you're breathing in goes down. And so what that means is your body is having to exercise in a hypoxic environment. When we're doing prolonged forms of exercise, we rely on aerobic uh, respiration. So our muscles are using oxygen to produce energy. So if we are trying to do the same form of exercise at altitude compared to at sea level without having acclimatized, it would be much, much more difficult because the body is having to work much harder to get that same amount of oxygen to the muscles where it's needed. So your heart rate has to go up. You have to pump the blood around your body quicker. Your breathing rate has to go up because you're um, trying to get that oxygen in and out of your lungs. And so there's quite a few difficulties that come associated with doing exercise at high altitude. And that's before you get on to the effects of the cold and the changeable weather conditions and often the uneven terrain and all of that. And in terms of preparing for that, you mentioned a few um, things already about uh, acclimatising to high altitude. How long does it typically take for your body to acclimatise? So acclimatisation happens in several stages. Uh, with an initial ascent to altitude in the first 24 to 48 hours, your body responds by uh doing things that can do quickly. So the first things to go up will be your heart rate and your respiratory rate. You're moving air in and out of your lungs quicker and your body's pumping it harder around your body. Uh, and the other thing that happens within the first 24 to 48 hours is that you start diuresing. So your body is producing more urine than you would normally. Uh, and that is to essentially hemoconcentrate your blood. So it's increasing the concentration of hemoglobin within the blood and therefore increasing the amount of uh, oxygen that is getting delivered to the tissues. Uh, so that's the effects that happen within the first 48 hours, um, which is why you often hear people say, you know, when you arrive at a new altitude, try and rest as much as you can for the first 48 hours, drink plenty of fluids. After that, your body then starts to acclimatize in a slightly different way. Uh, the diuresis settles down and your kidneys start to respond by producing something called erythropoietin or EPO and that stimulates your uh, bone marrow to produce extra red blood cells which increases the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood and it can, this process starts to happen within the first week but can take several weeks to reach uh, the maximum effects. And so that's why you often find with high altitude uh, expeditions such as Mount Everest obviously being the highest uh, people often will stay at the base camp doing ro like acclimatization rotations for a number of weeks, sometimes four to six weeks or longer, to allow their bodies the full amount of time to acclimatize to the, that low oxygen environment. And if someone doesn't kind of do all, all of that, what are the risks of going to a high altitude area and not and not basically taking all of this advice? What can happen to the body? So the the most obvious and uh, essentially undesirable effect of not acclimatizing properly if you're going to do a race is that you just won't be able to perform. Mm -hmm. You will be so out of breath, you will have to stop. You won't be able to carry on. And even if you are incredibly determined and you do push through it, you won't be performing anywhere near your uh, potential. Uh, so you aren't going to perform well in the race. And that's guaranteed. Uh, if you are actually, you know, okay with that and coming first or doing well in the race isn't your goal, it's actually just getting from the start to the finish, then actually there are other dangers which are to do with altitude-related illness and the most common form would be acute mountain sickness or AMS. 
but that can progress to uh, something called high altitude cerebral edema or HACE, which is where the brain starts to swell and is a life-threatening condition. There's also another condition called high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE, again, another life-threatening condition, which essentially happens if you overexert yourself at altitude without giving your body enough time to acclimatise properly. And what are the signs and symptoms that people might experience? Well, the signs and symptoms of AMS, uh, it's funny because a lot of these things overlap, but mm. you find it's nausea, headache, uh, lack of appetite, dizziness, uh, lethargy. These are signs of the heat-related illness as well, but obviously if it's in the context of going to altitude, then uh, it might also be altitude-related. Uh, when AMS becomes more dangerous and it turns into high-altitude cerebral edema, the things to look out for are neurological signs, and that is confusion typically, and vomiting and uh, truncal ataxia. So that is that same sort of drunken movement, the lack of body coordination that you could see in heat stroke. And essentially, uh, they, they can look very, very similar. Coming on to high-altitude pulmonary edema, the main symptom of that would be essentially shortness of breath that doesn't settle on rest. So normally at altitude, even you know bending down to tie up your shoelaces can make you out of breath. But when you rest, your body should be able to settle down and you should be able to speak in full sentences without needing to take multiple breaths again. But if after five, 10 minutes, you aren't able to settle down and you're still out of breath, that's sort of often the first sign of uh, high altitude pulmonary edema. And that can then progress to developing a dry cough, um, some sharp chest pain, uh, even pink frothy sputum that you're coughing up. These can all be signs and symptoms of high altitude pulmonary edema and are definite indications for stopping the race and getting down in altitude as quickly as you can. Mm. I was going to say, it sounds like the most obvious answer to these problems is to get away from the altitude and head down. Is there anything else um, people can do? Uh, if if people are exhibiting symptoms and signs of altitude sickness, the worst thing to do is to carry on trying to race mm-hmm. and uh, also to stay at that altitude. Uh, as you continue exerting yourself, it continues putting a, a, a essentially a pressure on the body uh, where it's having to try and deal with the lack of oxygen at the same time as having to work hard, and that can actually exacerbate the altitude sickness. It means that the tissues, the muscles and the brain are getting even less oxygen than they should be getting because you're still trying to exercise. So, you know, absolutely, if you're exhibiting these kinds of symptoms at altitude, the first thing is to stop and to rest. And the second thing is to get down in altitude as quickly as you can. And um, just having kind of read a few ultra running uh, tips and, and advice about these big events that are at high altitude, the general theme seems to be that people are advised to live at high altitude but train at low altitude so that they can kind of experience the effects of altitude while they're just going about their day-to-day lives but push themselves at low altitude so they don't kind of experience these symptoms and still get that training in. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're at a high altitude, your body is working hard even just to stay alive. And the normal processes that would be involved in building up muscles as a result of training um, are compromised when you're at altitude because instead of putting energy into making your muscles stronger and developing your respiratory muscles, actually what's happening is your body is just spending all of that energy on you know keeping you breathing at all mm-hmm. and uh, allowing you to acclimatize the altitude. So when you're trying to uh, train, it's often a good thing is to sort of sleep high and train low, which is the opposite message to when you're trying to acclimatize to altitude, which is often to climb high in the day and then sleep low. Yeah. So it's there's a sort of a subtle distinction there, which is worth bearing in mind. 
I mean, it'd be really nice if we could all spend a few weeks before a race <laughs> doing all of this acclimatization work. Yeah. Um, another side effect, I guess, of altitude um, is that it can add to dehydration, which we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mentioned before kind of avoiding alcohol and, and caffeine to try and reduce the impacts of dehydration. Yeah, so it's, it's sensible advice when you're going to altitude to avoid alcohol. Uh, obviously in a high altitude environment it's a riskier environment and you don't want to be impacting on your uh, ability to um, have quick reaction times and respond to the environment around you but also alcohol is obviously very dehydrating and the symptoms of hangover are frequently confused with the symptoms mm. of ams and you don't want to be evacuating yourself because you're hungover rather than actually <laughs> exhibiting signs of ams before your race um caffeine is a is an interesting one so caffeine can cause it's a bit of a myth that caffeine actually dehydrates you um it entirely depends on how, the water content and the caffeine content of of the coffee or the tea so if you're drinking a shot of basically pure caffeine that's likely to dehydrate you but most people drink a coffee or a tea that isn't actually uh, sufficiently high in caffeine to cause dehydration mm-hmm. um, and the other thing to bear in mind is that people often drink caffeine on a daily basis in the morning and the body can become dependent on it and what that means is if you were to suddenly stop drinking caffeine you can exhibit withdrawal symptoms which can be similar to altitude sickness such as headache and lethargy and so if you are preparing for a race and you've got a you know a couple of months to uh, get yourself ready then it's worth trying to reduce the amount of caffeine you're drinking on a on a daily basis um However, if you are a regular caffeine drinker and then you go to take part in the race, it's not advisable to suddenly go cold turkey and not have your caffeine because that will make you underperform and it will also uh, mean you probably feel pretty rubbish. Mm. I think the thing I'm taking away from this is all these symptoms do overlap no matter what mm-hmm. the cause and then you're going to be a bit confused about what, what's serious and what's just a caffeine-related headache. Exactly. Um, another thing that seems to be becoming more and more common is um, exercise-related hyponatremia, mm-hmm. um, which I think now a lot of races are advertising a little bit more, but I think it can be a difficult thing for runners to understand and then also know how, how to manage what they're drinking. So could you just chat a little bit about what hyponatremia is and how runners can best prepare? Yeah, so in the, the, the bloodstream, we have various components to our blood. There is the, the red blood cells, which carry oxygen, the white blood cells, which fight infection. And you've got, um, amongst other things, you've got the plasma, which is essentially the fluid component of the blood. And dissolved within that are various electrolytes, including sodium and potassium, calcium, magnesium. So hyponatremia is where the sodium content of the blood is lower than what we would describe as a normal range. Uh, and the trouble with that is that sodium within the body has an effect on the movement of water in and out of cells. So if your sodium in your bloodstream falls too low, essentially what that means is that uh, water from the bloodstream starts leaking out into tissues uh, around the body and can cause swelling in uh, various places. And so that would include swelling in uh, your limbs and in your in your fingers, uh, but it can also include swelling in other areas such as in the brain. And that can cause symptoms that we have become very familiar with already, such as confusion, nausea, dizziness, mm-hmm. vomiting. So hyponatremia is something that we are seeing more these days I think because a lot of people are taking up running who don't necessarily know that much running and assume that because they're sweating they need to hydrate more than they would otherwise and this actually can exacerbate the problem so by drinking 
water, you're essentially drinking a pure water that doesn't contain any sodium. And so the effect that has on the bloodstream is to dilute that and that sodium and cause your sodium to drop. Compounding that is that you're sweating, which means you're losing salt as well. And so that can also compound the problem. Uh, you, you'll see a lot of nutrition drinks and things that advertise isotonic drinks and isotonic gels. And these are possibly slightly better than drinking pure water. However, they have also been associated with causing hyponatremia. So essentially the what it boils down to is avoiding over drinking. When you're on any long race, um, you essentially just need to drink when you're thirsty. Your body has a very, very good inbuilt detector for when you need to drink. And that is, do I feel thirsty? So, you know, taking a massive bottle of water or even sips of water regularly if you're not feeling thirsty um, isn't necessarily the best way to go. You should drink when you're thirsty and avoid lots and lots of isotonic solutions thinking that's going to be sufficient to counteract the hyponatremia that can happen. It's so easy when you're in races and there's water stops so regularly to feel like oh I need to I need to take this on it's here I'll take it because I don't know when it's going to be next but actually sometimes you don't need to be drinking as often as the event is supplying no, water. absolutely. And and if you think of it this way, every time you have a drink of water, you're essentially making yourself a little bit heavier. And obviously mm. it's harder to run if you're heavy. So the more you sweat, <laughs> the lighter you get, the easier it is to run, right? <laughs> actually, that's um, one of the, the tips for running. Not really races so much, but if you're doing long runs yourself, say like in a hot, sunny um, environment, you can weigh yourself before and after to get an idea of whether you've put weight on as in drank too much water or if you've lost a load of weight during that run and lost too much water you can kind of gauge if you need to be drinking more or less and then obviously urine as well is a magical thing that we can just look at the color of our urine and gauge how dehydrated or, exactly. or overhydrated we are apart from at altitude in the first 48 hours because yep. you're <laughs> diureasing anyway so your water is always clear uh, your urine's always clear even. so in summary it sounds like um a lot of these symptoms overlap so basically anything that's abnormal for you is maybe a reminder to kind of slow down and have a think about what could be going on and just taking that time to rest and see if you feel better and if you don't maybe that's time to speak to medics or stop the race. It's really difficult balance I think between we've spoken about heat exhaustion and becoming dehydrated and then hyponatremia so just drinking to thirst I think is probably the takeaway message and acclimatization whether that's in terms of temperature of the environment you're going to or the altitude actually taking the time to look after your body and uh, gradually increasing your exertion in the in these environments so that the race day isn't a big shock. Is there anything else you Absolutely. think are important takeaway messages for people that are signing up to races? We don't want to scare anyone because <laughs> well, exactly. ultras are amazing things. Um, I, th I think a very important message we haven't really discussed uh, is actually that all of the things we have discussed are extremes and they are the things to be aware of and are obviously important. However, they are the extremes and they are the, the relative few compared to uh, most people who go and do these races and actually have a really, really good time, a very safe time. And there are so many, uh, so many benefits to running regularly from improved mental health, reduced incidence of depression, reduced incidence of diabetes. Uh, and I was talking about bad knees at the start and actually there's been loads of studies that have done that have completely debunked this myth. And actually they find that people who run have lower incidence of arthritis in the knees and have improved mobility as they as they get older. So, you know, there's so many positives to running and I know we've focused a lot on the, the <laughs> dangers and the risks, um, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that on balance, running is definitely a good thing to be doing and don't let these these risks put you off. 
Yeah, and just knowledge is power. So if you know the symptoms and signs, then you know what to look out for and then you can react. Exactly. Great, thank you so much. Very welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. If you want to hear more from Nathan, then you can find him on Instagram by searching expedition underscore doctor. Once again, I just want to reiterate that everything we discussed today is relatively uncommon and listening to your body is the most important thing that you can do as a runner. All the advice and information that we shared was very general, so if you are planning to take on a big challenge, you should definitely be discussing this with your doctor and, where possible, using coaches and other sporting professionals to help you. I'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast, and you can follow me by searching at Marathon Medic. Thank you for listening. <laughs>